Hello, friends, family, enemies, and strangers of all kinds. Welcome back to The Extra Milestone, your weekly Cinemaholic spin-off series where we go back in time to discuss, to discover, and to admire the classic films that have made the cinematic landscape what it is today. I am Sam Noland, your host as always, a staff writer for Cinemaholics and host of this very show every single week. And listeners, it's been too long since I've said this, but I can once again say, who the hell are you? <laughs> I love it. Uh, I am Anthony Battaglia, and it is good to be here. I'm ready. Anthony, it is so good to have you back. It has been it's been a while since we last podcasted together, hasn't it? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's been a few minutes. Yeah, it's been a minute. Yeah, the uh, our podcast from back in 2018. Anyway, that's all I got, which we did with our good friend Jason Reed, came to a rather abrupt end. And uh, I, I I would I would like to take this moment to on air. I want to apologize uh, not only to you but to the listeners as well for doing that. It was. It was a, a very poor way to handle the situation, and so I wish it could have gone down better. Oh, I don't think anyone's to blame, I think. Uh, I think it just ran its course, and we just never had a proper uh, wrap-up. But I, I'm, I'm, I still look back on all those episodes fondly. Yeah, you know, we did some good stuff. It was... I, I still listen back to, to those all the time, especially during this uh, lockdown period, or at least this pandemic period that we've had. And yeah, there's some really fun stuff. And so that feed is still exists. All the episodes are there. Um, you can hear the, the goodness that is Anthony and Jason and I in this tiny little room in the college dorms that was really echoey. <laughs> yeah, and then we eventually were able to move to the library. Woo. Oh, yes, which was only marginally better. But... Very marginally. <laughs> and, and every once in a while, we did it from Jason's house, so that was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I remember that one. But yeah, it was it was a fun time. It was just really time-consuming, the, the way we were doing the show, and so we realized that it was not feasible to... I think we all sort of realized that it couldn't go on week after week and so maybe you're right that it was just meant to be but here we are several years later we are on the extra milestone and anthony this is a big one because we today anthony and i are going to talk about two movies that might be the single most iconic pair of movies we've ever discussed on extra milestone we've done big movies before as individual episodes but this we have not one but two all-time defining blockbusters of a certain era that still get looked back on fondly today and for damn good cause i say so what do you say we jump into our first feature anthony i'm ready to go i am absolutely just as ready as you are the first movie that we are going to discuss is the one the only steven spielberg's jaws there is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him Jaws. Yeah. <laughs> 
This is Universal's extraordinary motion picture version of Peter Benchley's best-selling novel, Jaws. I just found out that a girl got killed here last week. And you knew it. You knew there was a shark out there. You knew it was dangerous. But you let people go swimming anyway. A movie that everyone knows about, you know, it's it's one of the most iconic movies ever for a reason. Um, I remember not long after we met, matter, matter of fact, I think it might have been the very first day, it was not long before we started talking about how great Jaws was. And now, Anthony, I want to know, I've never actually asked this before, What? how did you discover Jaws? Like, what's the story between you and Jaws? Uh, oh, geez. Uh, well, I was uh, very, far too young. Uh, when I saw it, I remember, uh, because I was still, uh, I was still being like, uh, babysat by my grandfather. He would come over every week and he'd watch me and my brother. And, uh, if I was pretty young back then, and I remember watching it with him for the first time. Hmm. And, uh, I remember being pretty startled and shocked. And, uh, I, I remember being confused, like, just stay out of the water people. <laughs> but, you know uh, what? yeah. Uh how old were like what, what what are we talking here like six seven I, years old maybe i'm gonna, I'm gonna go with yeah it's probably seven years old so seven and, year old yeah. anthony was smarter than the majority of the characters in this movie yeah and and then as i as i grew older and started watching it more and getting uh, that was you know years before i got into actual uh enjoying filmmaking mm-hmm. uh i i'm like oh so this movie is actually brilliant and it's more than just stay out of the water people yeah there's a lot going on in this. I remember I first came to it much later in life than almost everyone else. I want to say I was maybe 15 years old when I first saw Jaws. For whatever reason, it had just eluded me up until that point. Um, I was uh, sheltered might be the wrong word, but I was certainly not allowed to see adult content. You know, like Well, it's, it was, it's rated PG. Come on, man. Yeah, it's rated PG in 1975. Jason and I just talked about Gremlins last week and how that <laughs> almost single-handedly led to the creation of the PG-13 rating. So this predates that by nine years. And yeah, it's certainly not an R movie, you know, but of course there was no PG-13 at the time. And so for that reason, I guess for whatever reason, they they don't have the power to retroactively go back and change ratings, do they? I don't think so. I don't think that's how the MPAA works. Yeah, they give it. They give a movie a rating when it first comes out, and that's it. Set in that's stone. the rating. Interesting. Yeah. So, so it is a PG movie, and honestly, there's only like a few things that really differentiate it between PG and PG thirteen, and a lot of it is just the visceral 
nature of it like the actual the gore as, as sparse as they are yeah the gore i think specifically the conclusion of the movie it gets it's very violent very hmm, whatever could you be talking about oh you'll see once we get there uh but suffice it to say blood is shed and not just human blood there is uh, various types of creatures involved um and yeah so so all that is to say that I just had never seen it until I was about 15. And then it was that classic thing where I kept hearing about it. I knew of it, but I had never actually seen it. And then that came up organically one day. And my stepdad was appalled at me (laughs) for having never seen Jaws. And I was like, well, hey, we got technology at our fingertips. Let's check it out. And we watched it. It was my stepdad and my mom and I. And... Life was never the same. And I think I've seen it like five or six times since and have only grown to appreciate it it more every single time. Yeah, I know. I I sort of, I don't, uh, I don't usually make a habit of watching movies that I like over and over again because. Oh, I do. I I know. Yeah. And some, and some people do, and that's awesome. And I wish, I actually wish I had that skill because a lot of it has to do with this weird paranoia I have of not liking movies as much. Like I'll purposely keep them away from me like I'll, I'll distance myself from them like i it's been half a decade since i've watched raiders of the lost ark and i'm like well wow. why watch it now let's see how long i can go like it's this weird part of my brain that i just sort of feel like uh keeping keeping things at a distance uh this is not true for every movie of course i recently talked about monty python and the holy grail a movie i think i've seen 30 something times so Oh, geez. there are certainly exceptions, but a lot of the time I will sort of I will sort of go with the slow savoring of something as opposed to consuming it voraciously over the. Oh, I'm sure there's a lot of value years. to that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious to hear how we perhaps look at it differently. But yeah, so Jaws is it's sort of pointless to really go into what it is. You know, everyone knows what it is there. It's the 4th of July, Amity Island. There's a shark that has to quote Richard Dreyfus, staked its claim in the waters off of Amity Island, and it it's got to be taken care of. And the real villain of the movie is a the shark. Obviously, it's a threat. It's out there. It's putting. It's endangering lives and livelihood of this island. But really, the thing that, especially this time, watching it in early September of 2020, made me realize this is maybe the most relevant movie ever 45 years later completely inadvertently the real villains of this movie are is is the mayor played by murray hamilton who those just, pesky politicians oh my gosh it is so for the longest time i've watched this movie and there are there's a scene early on where it's the first, not the first shark attack, but the second one, the uh, little, the little Kintner boy, where we just see the fin for a second, like roll over in the ocean. There's this geyser of blood and then everyone runs into the ocean. And for the longest time, I was so weirded out by that. I'm like, no, no one would ever do that. And I watch it now and I'm like, I stand corrected, Steven. <laughs> yep. People do not regard threats like this movie has been been brought up a lot in the past couple of months in the way that it sort of is eerily similar to what's been going on for open the beaches most of the year now exactly yeah they're just so insistent on uh on keeping 
that capitalistic train going that it's not until to to use a current phrase that i was thinking about it's not until a second wave a second spike comes that they actually start to take it seriously and so i'm curious if history is going to is going to parallel jaws even more than that anthony i know you've seen it many times did you rewatch the movie for this i rewatched it earlier today very nice. As did I. Yeah. And did, did, were you having the same thought about how it's sort of eerily, like really accurate to what's what's been going on a lot? Yeah, I did. And uh, the same with another Spielberg movie, Jurassic Park, like opening mm-hmm. something that's, you know, pe- many people, many experts tell you not to open it. And then mm-hmm. you open it when it's not ready to be opened. And then you know what? People get eaten by sharks and or dinosaurs and or viruses. So, yeah. you know, there's that. I'm a lot more, I will say this, I still think most of the movies, by and large, are bad. I'm a little tiny wee bit more forgiving of the Jurassic Park franchise as a whole. Because for the longest time, I was like, why do they keep reopening the park? It turns out danger doesn't really matter to a lot of people, or to the ones in charge, at least. So that's, that's an interesting movie to bring up. I hadn't thought of that specifically in this context. And yeah, I was it was weird. I was watching Jaws this morning and I found myself critiquing the movie because of things that I didn't think were accurate. Like it was it was as if the movie were made today and I was like, well, that's not really a reflection of anything. Like what's with the first shark that they catch? That doesn't reflect anything. It wasn't until I thought that in my head that I realized, wait a second, this movie is 45 years old. Exactly. It's that accurate that when it's not, it's distracting and you think what the hell movie, come on. Um, so yeah, we're, we're sort of, uh, we're sort of jumping around a little bit, but let's, uh, let's, let's talk about, the uh, the cast of this movie. So we got Roy Scheider as Chief Brody. We got Richard Dreyfus as Matt Hooper, or as Quint says, Hooper, which is a lot of fun. And of course, we have Quint, played by Robert Shaw, survivor of the USS Indianapolis. And I'm curious to hear your take on this, because for the longest time, for as long as I can remember, which granted is only about half a decade now, I've sort of looked at this movie, at these three characters, and by by extension, the mayor a little bit, Mayor Vaughn. I've looked at them as sort of different personifications of traditional male archetypes. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. So, so I'm curious. Have you ever looked at it that way, or do you think that they're more they're they're more universal than that? I have not looked at it in the uh, archetypal uh, way of looking at it. I've I've always admired the the script of this movie. Um, how how these three guys are very they're they all have a specific goal in mind, mm-hmm. and they all have their own separate ways of getting to that goal. And so maybe I'm thinking of it subliminally in the archetypal way. But I was thinking about it just like representative of um, kind of like, how would you handle this? Who would yeah. you be? If you're on the boat, Sam, which one are you? You know, hmm. that kind of thing. That's a good question. Uh, I would say, oh, wow. I'm definitely not Quint because I'm just not. I think all but only Quint is Quint. Um, but I think if we're looking at it in that sort of archetypal sense that I was mentioning earlier, you got Chief Brody, who's sort of the uh, the righteous sort of 
lawman, but not in like sort of a like a John Wayne kind of way where it's just driven by vengeance or anything. Like he legitimately wants to do the right thing. All of them legitimately want to do the right thing, but it's the way that they go about it, which makes their characters so interesting. And I love the way how we see throughout the entire movie, but especially in the second half, which takes place on the boat, we see how they each have their specialty and they each have something they're good at that none of the others are. And they come to blows over it. They clash with each other over it. And that, that is what makes it, so satisfying to see when they're starting to work together. You know, I think of the first scene where they tie off the barrel and shoot it. Like it's, it's really close. It's really tense, but also they're clearly working as a team and they're putting faith in each other. And that's, that's really good to see. It's good to see a team in a movie that have their differences, but also respect each other. And they don't define themselves by those differences. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, um, I I think the the relationship they have in the movie is really interesting and fun to watch. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know if you have, but I've read the book, mm-hmm. and it is wildly different. That's what I've book. heard. Yeah, and I can talk about it as we go. But in the book, they're they're all constantly at odds, and they don't like each other. And interesting. I think the movie is just I think the way it paces out their relationships and their interactions, it's believable. It's fun. It's dramatic. And mm-hmm. I, oh, I love it. It's, we could go on and on about just every great thing about this movie. Yeah. And it's, and it's wonderful to see them sort of, oh, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Sort of come closer together in the midst of this crisis, ultimately resulting in, of course, the conclusion of this movie. Now we are, as you could probably gather, we're sort of, we're going to assume you've seen the movie because to be fair, you probably have. It's It doesn't make a lot of sense to sort of keep this one a secret. Um, I remember the, the one thing I know for a fact from the book, because I read this earlier today, that is different from the movie is that in the book, Matt Hooper, Richard Dreyfuss' character, has an affair with uh, Chief Brody's wife. Is that right? Yeah, uh, uh, like four chapter affair. And it's so oh, boring. Gosh. And like four out of 14 chapters are devoted to oh, really? Ellen being horny for Hooper. And <laughs> it's just not, yeah, the, the, the movie is, I can't go on enough about how much better the movie is in the book, but there are a lot of good elements in the book that I enjoy. Interesting. I'm curious to hear about it. Yeah. So let's just sort of go through it. So we have the opening scene where it's late at night. It's at the campfire. A lot of teens probably indulging in certain uh, substances late at night on the beach around the bonfire. And two of them run off and the guy is just too drunk to keep going. And the girl goes into the ocean and gets eaten by a shark. There's your movie right there. What a, what a fantastic opening. And it really sets the bar early on of just how scary the ocean is. You'll notice most of this movie is set during the day. And that brings me to a question I had that it's not the most relevant thing, but I'm curious where you stand on it. Anthony, is Jaws a horror movie? I think a lot of people would consider a horror movie, but mm-hmm. I don't know if I would. Yeah. I, I I mean, it's certainly a thriller. Yes, But absolutely. is it is it scary? Are you scared by this movie? Because... Like like a ghost story, a ghost can get you in your house, on the street, wherever. But right. how can you be scared of a shark if you live in Colorado, as I do? 
and uh, it just you know but i don't know maybe it is a horror movie because seven-year-old me was very scared of sharks like they're gonna get me if i go to the bathroom there you go i mean hey where else are they gonna get you yeah that it's i think i think you're right i think it is easy to see both sides of it i would say it is a horror movie but for a different reason than most horror movies like when you first think when you first hear the word horror it's scary for a different reason you know what i'm saying now i don't know about you but i actually i wouldn't call it a phobia but i definitely do not care for the ocean and if i never go into it again i would be oh, i'm with you happy i'm yeah. with you there is something about the ocean just this inky black void that we know almost nothing about that it takes up most of the planet and yet it is a complete mystery it is a place where if without the proper protection and equipment we could very easily die even just from being underwater for more than like i don't know i don't know what the exact time is four minutes there's just this mystery to it and the fact that you can't see anything most of the in most of the oceans of the world at least that's really scary to me i remember i think it was 2013 i was at the beach the biannual vacation that my family takes i was walking along the shoreline and suddenly i felt the sharp pain in my foot as if something had punctured the bottom the sole of my foot i lift up my foot sure enough there's a pair of rusty scissors sticking out of my foot oh my god i thought you were gonna say like you stepped on a jellyfish or something oh i wish i would have love to have stepped on a jellyfish oh, geez. no i had to i had to go home i had to get tested for tetanus immediately and i had to and i had to walk on this wound for several days and since then i have not set foot in the ocean i'm like nope not for me there's you have no idea what's in there so much of the world's trash and refuse has gone into that place and there's no way to tell where it's all gone it is this scary void of mystery and i don't care for it oh i'm with you i i've been in the ocean once when i was uh maybe 10 years old uh <laughs> didn't go more than knee deep uh yeah. i was like uh, there i had seen jaws at that point there are sharks out there <laughs> and i whenever i whenever people tell me like why don't you just go to the beach i'm like i think of this uh comedy bit from brian callen where uh people are saying it's rare it's so rare that shark attacks him and he goes where you are, it's rare. Where I am on land, never. So, like, <laughs> makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Why not? Why risk getting murdered by a sea creature? You know? Exactly. I think there are that. You know what I like? Landlocked states. That's where I mm -hmm. live. That's where I. That's where I breathe, and that's where I thrive. I think. The ocean is one sort of fear I have. The other one, weirdly enough, also related to the ocean. I have this recurring nightmare where a tsunami destroys everything, which is bizarre because I live in Colorado. It makes no sense to be scared of tsunamis. But alas, here we are. And the third one I have, and this is a total tangent, but I just feel like saying it. I have a fear of getting electrocuted because I was briefly electrocuted when I was like 13 years old. <laughs> oh, geez. And it was not fun. And I'm like, okay, so now I'm intensely careful. Like I have this weird skittishness of wall outlets. So if you ever 
want to scare me, bring a wall outlet and I'll be really terrified. Your worst nightmare is toasters in the ocean. Jeez. But it really is, though. I'm, I am really careful with uh, toasters and all sorts of, uh, I almost said medical. I have no idea why. Electrical appliances. So, yeah, little tangent, but regardless. Um, and yeah, we hear that John Williams score and it is just, it is a mystery under there. You can't see it. And what's in there wants to kill you and everyone else. And it's really serious right off the bat. And I really like that. And I love the way that the movie just gets going. Like it doesn't feel the need to sort of introduce what's going on with everyone, what they're, you know, where they are. We find that out organically as the story goes along when really what we're focusing on is this beach that needs to be closed. And that's when we meet Chief Brody, who is really personable in this movie. I've always loved Roy Scheider in this role. Um, there's a little moment that means nothing at all, but I really love seeing it every single time. It's when they're first going to investigate the corpse of the girl who washed up on the beach. And if you look closely, there's a scene where Chief Brody sort of like slips on some sand and almost falls. And that's just not something that you see a lot of heroes do. They sort of have this swagger about them, this perfection, this impenetrability that everything they do is right. Uh, that is so refreshing to see the alternative here. There's a lot of doubt on Brody's part throughout the entire movie. Is that something that you've uh, connected with as you've seen this, Anthony? Oh, yeah. I was just thinking today how how different it is to see, especially uh, a movie from that time when like kind of cop movies and cop shows were on the rise. Mm -hmm. This is, this is a cop movie and he's a cop and yeah. he, he, it's not about catching criminals. It's not about vengeance on oh, the, the guy. He stole my daughter or anything like that. It's, <laughs> his job is to protect people. And if he's got to close the beaches, he'll close the beaches. That mm -hmm. sounds very anticlimactic. But that's what his job is, and it's very captivating to see uh, Roy Scheider in that part. And I think I think he's very down to earth and relatable, and I it's, I love it. Yeah, one of the greatest moments is after the second attack when he realizes, like, I should have insisted on it, I didn't, and now two people are dead. When poor Alex Kintner's mom, just oh my gosh, I can't even imagine goes up to him and says, you knew. And he's like legitimately remorseful to the point where Mayor Vaughn is trying to talk him out of it. Like, ah, hey, don't listen to her. And he's like, no, she's literally exactly right. And I was very irresponsible to give in to essentially the peer pressure of everyone. Like there's that town meeting where we get just a bunch of characters. My favorite one is the uh, the woman with glasses and sort of curly hair is like, I don't think that's funny at all. Like yeah. I've always just thought something was really funny. About Are her. you going to close the beaches? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's in the car, the yard or whatever. And um, yeah, that's, that's another thing I really love about this movie that I just notice more and more every single time, how, you really get a sense of community on this island. You get us every character that has a speaking line really sets themselves apart. There are the classics. There's, uh, you know, there's the ones we've already mentioned. My personal favorite and my brother's personal favorite is after they catch that tiger shark and they're like, well, what kind of shark is it? And Richard Dreyfuss goes, it's a tiger shark. And the guy turns and goes, a, a what? what? <laughs> yeah. Which is just a brilliant delivery. That's all you need. That entire character is formed right there. It reminds me of, 
And granted, this went on much, much longer than the runtime of Jaws, but it reminds me of that tight-knit community of recurring characters in The Simpsons, how you know them immediately. They all have their personality. They don't even need to be there for longer than a few seconds, but you know who they are. There are oh, a lot yeah. of movies like that. To Kill a Mockingbird is another one. And it's something that's really impressive. And not a lot of filmmakers take the time to create those one sentence characters, you know, those bit roles. Yeah, it's really smart casting. And uh, and yeah, so we see immediately like they're going to work and uh Chief Brody goes to like an arts and crafts store, which I love, and takes the paintbrush out of the thing and knocks it over, you know, like a hero in a movie does. That's another <laughs> one of my favorite moments. And yeah, just gives into the pressure and opens the beaches. And then he's there on the beach watching everyone just waiting for something to happen. And sure enough, it does. And it's really horrific. And you get that just iconic, really dramatic zoom in shot that is really just strange looking the way the way uh, that they do that is by moving the camera closer to the actor while simultaneously zooming out or maybe it's the other way around but it creates this weird effect where the background gets closer and closer like it sort of compresses the frame while everything stays the same size so it's really yeah i've heard it called the jaws shot i've heard Mm -hmm. it called the hitchcock zoom because i guess hitchcock did it he did in vertigo or something. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it's 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 a it's a cool shot. Cameras yeah. are wild, aren't they? I love. They them. are really wild. Yeah, um, and yeah, and that's pr- and the rest of the movie pretty much gets going. Like we could we could sort of talk about each moment specifically, but let's sort of let's sort of jump around a little bit. What is let's let's say before the boat. Uh, before they get on the boat and go out to sea. What is something, what's a moment that you find yourself connecting with uh, time and time again as you watch this movie? What's a moment or like maybe a set piece or a scene or an interaction or something? What do you got, Anthony? I mean, I it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. It's certainly my favorite scene on land. It's, the, it's right before Hooper shows up at uh, Brody's house and uh, Brody just... Ha- sitting at the table he's distraught and he's he's got his hands on his face and his his son who's his youngest son who's probably like i don't know four yes is is like mimicking his hand motions and when he moves his hand the son moves his hand when he puts his hands over his eyes his son puts his hands over the eyes they make funny faces and i think that scene's certainly not in the book i think that is all spielberg right there oh yeah i think that tenderness of that scene, it, it, it lets you know so much of what you need to know about Brody as a person, his motivations, and then Hooper shows up and then he gets drunk and it's, it's, it's a, you can, you can just see the gears turning in that whole scene. And I, that's, that's one of my favorite scenes. Yeah, you're absolutely right that it's a Spielberg moment. I'm trying to think of another director that would go out of their way to put something like that in a movie. Sure, there are, you know, sentimental directors, for lack of a better word, but it's just that sort of unnecessary moment of humanization. And you have to remember, this scene is immediately following what we mentioned a couple of times so far, after, right after uh, the little Kintner boy dies. So he he's feeling immense regret and remorse and that he's connecting with his own child in this moment of, I really have to do something because this cannot go on. That's really powerful. And then I just love the moment right afterwards where, where he's like, now nah, get out of here. Like as yeah. to say, there's adult 
stuff now. We got to figure out what's going on. And then Richard Dreyfus shows up. We haven't talked a lot about Richard Dreyfus, who Love him. provides a lot of the comic relief in this movie. I think probably my favorite, the, my favorite joke in the movie, the funniest part. Every single time it gets a laugh out of me. Actually, two. And one of them is, I think, meant to be funny. And one of them I find funny for some weird reason. The first one is when they go out after slicing open that first shark, they realize this isn't it. We got to, you know, let's go out and see if we can find it. And they're just sort of talking. And Brody's like, so where'd you get this boat? And Hooper's like, oh, I bought it. What are you, rich? Yeah. <laughs> just have, yeah just that dreyfus delivery of oh yeah i'm rich like he clearly uh just has no bones about it and i love knowing that the way that uh bit of dialogue works out in retrospect it's sort of funny to go back and see when he first shows up and is getting just all this guff sort of by you know the people on the island like okay they're college boy ah, they're all gonna die okay yeah. Like, he really doesn't care what they think. And I like that about him. I admire that in a character. The other moment, and I'm just going to jump right to the end. It's after the shark blows up and Richard Dreyfus, who's been presumed dead, who's been out of the action, just sort of swims to the surface and is like, hey, what I miss? There's something about that that I always just, I, I just crack up watching it every single time because that is so Hooper right there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's like, where you been, buddy? <laughs> yeah, I just swam to the bottom of the ocean and, and uh, sat it out until I heard an explosion noise, and here I am. So I like to think that's exactly what was going through his head. Uh, yeah, so so we've got the we've got the first death on the beach. We've got the moment. We've got them. Oh, here's something I want to mention. So the idea of the jump scare is something that has kind of been beaten into the ground and it didn't take long. It is just this really, uh, for lack of a better, I, it's a it's a word that gets tossed around a lot, but it's just this really lazy way of sort of making sure the audience is paying attention. Like, ah, scary, right? 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 Please, please say that we're scary. And I just, I am never a fan of it. I think it's the worst in those conjuring movies because the way it always happens is that, you know, there's this quietness, there's maybe a dark spot on the screen. You can literally set your watch to it. It's a one, two, three jump scare. And then it plays this really loud sound effect that is just annoying more than anything. And I'm sick of it. I will say this right now. If I were to make a list of like the top five jump scares in movie history, Jaws would be at least three of them, you know? Yeah, definitely. So we've got the, we've got number one, which is the corpse floating out of the boat and scaring Hooper and he drops the tooth. That, That's Ben Gardner's head. Yeah. <laughs> Every single time I watch that, I, I defy myself. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to jump this time. I swear I won't. I know exactly when it's going to happen. I know exactly where it is. I know exactly what to expect and it still gets me every time because it's just that effective, just that oh, yeah, me too. isolation of you're underwater, there's a shark around and there's this wrecked boat and then just a guy floats out. There's just something really nightmarish about it and the fact that it it's it's a lot of it is the editing that it cuts to the shot and then within a second the scare happens. So that's really effective. The second one is 
almost not even a jump scare because of how iconic the moment is, but it's uh, right before you're going to need a bigger boat throwing the chum into the water. That um, is a great moment. Oh yeah. It's so great. I, and I heard this story and I was trying to figure out who told it and I couldn't, I wasn't able to figure this out in time, but evidently there was a version of the script because that line is not in the book as I have. Definitely not. There was a version of the script. Um, this was, this was rewritten a lot and one version had, okay, they're on the boat. They're throwing the chum out into the water. They're doing all the stuff. And then at one point there was a page of dialogue that was entirely crossed out with a pen or a marker or something. And then in the margins, really small, just said, you're going to need a bigger boat. It just communicates so much in that one little line. I don't know if you've heard that story, Anthony. I have heard that story. Yeah. I, Jaws has my favorite of all time behind the scenes stories. I love everything. I've seen yeah. every documentary there is about this movie. I can't wait to talk about a few of those. And just, just to quickly mention the third jump scare, it's when Hooper's in the shark cage and it shows up. And yeah. That one, they really draw that one out, which I noticed this time. So that's really effective. So yeah, at least three of the top five horror filmmakers, I beg of you, either stop doing it or change your game because I'm sick of jump scares. I know I sound like a crotchety old man right now, but oh, I'm please with you. do it for me. Yeah, um, I, I'm not a fan of like Annabelle, the doll yeah. running through a door all of a sudden. Ah, I saw it. <sighs> Jesus. Actually, I will say this. Uh, one of the other top five jump scares is in the movie Deep Red. I'm not going to say what it is, but Jason and I talked about it a few months ago. And that if, if you want a good jump scare, watch that movie and you'll know. You'll know when you see it. <laughs> well, I haven't really seen that, so I will, I will see it. Yeah. yeah, it's really good. I highly recommend it. Um, but I digress. So. So we've talked about a lot of stuff. Is is there anything else? Let's just say, is there anything else on the island before they set out on the boat that we haven't touched on yet that you wanted to bring up? Oh, I don't think so. I think uh, I think we covered everything that I want to talk about. Yeah. There's one more thing I want to mention, and it's another another moment that I just have always found so hilarious. It's I think it's after the first... I'm trying to remember exactly where it was. I think it's after the second death where, you know, everyone knows there's a shark in the water and those two guys late at night go out on the dock. Their whole plan is to take a chain with a big hook on the end of it, skewer, like crudely skewer a big roast beast or something, throw it out into the ocean. And then what? I've, I've always been baffled by this asinine plan of theirs, and it nearly gets them killed. Yeah, just Abbott Costello just trying to catch a shark. I guess so, yeah. So that would that's always made me laugh. And that brings me to a point that I want to bring up, and I think this will sort of uh, transition into the second half. This movie is hailed a lot for being really, maybe it's scary, maybe it's iconic, maybe it's dramatic. Doesn't get talked about a lot for how funny it is. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. I think it's a hilarious movie. Mm -hmm. I think we mentioned a few of the funny moments before, but there is, again, it's that honesty. It's that down-to-earth-ness of this mm -hmm. movie. Definitely. That really m makes way for these comedic situations. And, of course, there are a lot that we haven't mentioned. We, Of course, we won't get to them all. Um, but, yeah, that's just something that I've always admired about this movie, and it's sort of comes to a culmination i think in 
the scene that I want to talk about next, which is when they're comparing scars, when Quint and Hooper are sort of like showing off to each other. And it's a funny scene. They're clearly a little inebriated and you see Brody just sort of looking on like there's a scene where he looks down the front of his pants. I don't know what that's about, but it's oh, just no, this he, funny visual. They're, they're bragging about their scars and all their stories. And all he had is like his appendix out. And that's like, Oh, I, I can't brag about that. Oh, that's okay. I must've missed that. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. that makes a lot more sense. Then. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so there's this, it's just this scene where they really, for the first time they connect. I think Quint and Hooper have been at odds this entire time. This is the first time when they really see each other and realize like, yes, we, you know what? We just look at the world differently and yes, it's going to make for conflict, but also it can make for just a lot of real humanity. And that's, that's one of the greatest scenes of this movie. And I'm I'm sure you concur. Yeah. That scene. um, I think that's probably another Spielberg edition because nothing like that in the book in the book it's hooper is not likable quint's pretty much still quint like robert shaw adds a lot but quint was quint was on the paper as as quint Hmm. and that scene just that scene wouldn't fit in the book it wouldn't work in the movie it just it it's i don't know that scene like all of my favorite scenes don't even involve the shark like it's weird (laughs) yeah that's uh, freaking spielberg man the way the way that he could just just add charm to any movie is really uncanny. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, you just mentioned it. We might as well talk about it. There is, of course, one of the things that Jaws is most famous for is the way that it builds terror without actually showing the monster. And of course, this was an accident, which oh, is yeah. so amazing to think about. Like, what kind of butterfly effect universe would we have lived in if the shark, if the animatronic shark had worked just fine? Would the movie, uh, uh, I'm sure it wouldn't be as good, but would it have even been a hit? Who knows how much uh, how much difference that little change made, you know? Oh, yeah. I, I, I've seen like the storyboards of the original uh, plan and like the sharks in a lot of the movie. He's in the whole opening with Chrissy. He's under the boat. He's attacking the boat. And I just can't imagine how there'd be so much less suspension um, than I think there is uh, without the shark. It's so much better, which is weird to say. Yeah, it's funny. I... I'm not exactly sure how true this is. I really should have looked it up. But I remember hearing at one point that the barrels, the yellow barrels full of air that they shoot into the shark with a harpoon wasn't in the movie initially. They had to add that as a way of being able to visualize the shark, the way they it sort of drags it around the surface of the water. That's how we know it's there because we can't actually see it. So that's and to think of the amount of suspense that those end up building at the end of the day is just all the more fascinating. Yeah. I, th- I think, I think that's pretty much right because the barrels are in the book, but not hmm. until the very, very last chapter. And they're like a last, last ditch, uh, attempt to, okay, we got to stop the shark. So they're like, let's get some barrels. And yeah. then it's, yeah, the movie does it. Oh, everything about the movie is better. I love it. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about this sort of second, half of the movie as a whole we've mentioned little bits and pieces but anthony i want to ask you what do you think is it let's just start with a basic question what is it that makes this entire 
second half of the movie. I, I checked. It's not exactly half. It's closer to 50 minutes out of a two hour something odd movie. But for all intents and purposes, it's the second half. Exactly. What do you think it is about just this location and this task that they have that makes it so engaging throughout, so exciting to watch? Well, I think it's the pacing hmm. because it just, it, it flows in a way that's, that <laughs> there we go. No pun intended. Uh, um, it flows in a way that is natural and intense and obviously in a thriller, you want to be thrilled, but naturally, exactly. And I think a lot of times some of these slower moments between the characters are kind of forced in and maybe a newer movie, um, because they're like, okay, well, we don't have the budget to show a big CGI shark every scene, so let's throw in some banter with the characters. But I yeah. think what makes this work is I'm just as happy watching the scenes with the shark as I am without the shark. I think everything works. I think the fact that they're out there the whole time. Like in the book, they go back to port every oh, time. Really? Like every day. And it messes <laughs> with the pacing so much. They're like, oh, okay, wow. we'll get back out here tomorrow. And like Brody goes home and has dinner. And like, I think the movie, that's the biggest change for me. I was huh. like, the, the pacing of the boat scenes is incredible. And it, it, there are some slow moments, but they don't feel slow, you know? Yeah. There's a, there's sort of some downtime initially. And I like the way that it actually sort of builds in intensity gradually with, let's call them just like the shark encounters that sort of happen one at a time and i really like the first one where they've got the line out going into the ocean they're sort of just familiarizing themselves with the ship uh and in turn familiarizing us i shouldn't the not the ship the boat in turn familiarizing us with that and we really get to know this small location really really well and then just sees a little like twang on the line and it's like Oh, Jesus, here we go. And I love the way that Quint just slowly hooks into the fishing rod. And then just like that, here we go. This thi this is for real now. And that's really exciting. And then, of course, they encounter the shark a couple more times. Um, yeah, what you said just then about how a, another, a worse movie, let's call it, would just force in banter, that made my blood curdle a little bit yep. just thinking about a movie like trying to force that kind of connection when it's not really there because because i'm thinking of a movie that would try to like improvise that kind of stuff which just doesn't work as well so yeah i think you're absolutely right the writing is really it, it's 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 a good thing that i went through such a long writing process because they really sharpened this into uh one of one of the better scripts i think ever made oh yeah i agree i i think they because well they started shooting without a script even finished mm -hmm. and that's that's another one of my favorite stories like this movie is just a miracle like how is it so good how did the boat not sink a hundred times when they were filming <laughs> like that's it's crazy to me it really is yeah this and, and of course they did end up going like way over schedule right oh yeah way over schedule way over budget but you know what i think it worked out in the end um oh yeah made a few of... bucks for the studio yeah, I just want to. I just want to. I just want to bring that up real fast. So we all know that Jaws was a huge success, sort of created the blockbuster as we know it. Until I want to say about six or seven years ago, 
not adjusted for inflation, it was still one of the top 50 highest grossing movies of all time. Like that's how much this movie was made. And part of that was because it was released differently from a lot of movies at the time, actually. What was happening at least most of the time up until that point was movies would be released in what was called a road show where they would sort of come out in short bursts around the world or around the country or whatever it wouldn't be released to the same to to everywhere at the same time and this was something that jaws actually sort of pioneered and so now that's you know the very very immediate present notwithstanding that's how most movies are released where it's just everywhere the same day maybe it's a few different like a few weeks apart for different nations but generally speaking this this movie really kind of created that and was immensely successful so more than made up for all of the losses that it accrued along oh yeah wild success yeah but anyway so so to get back to uh the sort of third or i guess second out of two acts of the movie yeah it really it really starts to get intense there doesn't it yeah i mean just more differences uh from the book hooper dies in the book Mm -hmm. and uh not in a and Quint does too, but not in quite the way he does in the movie. It's just the the movie handles everything so I don't know I don't know how to put it like it's it's tight. It's yeah. a tightly packed like third act. Yeah. And it's intense and it's mm-hmm. freaky and it's jarring just to see, you know, blood spurting everywhere. And it's 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 weird. Like I, I can't it's really hard to think of other movies like this. It's just so, I, I, I just can't get over Spielberg. He is my favorite director, and this movie is—he was so young when he did it, and I think it's just a perfect, perfect movie. This is a, this is the best Spielberg movie, right? Can we agree on that? I, I'd, I'd say so. Yeah, I think it's it's really close. I'm a huge fan of Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Those would probably be my two and three, but man, that you. There's just something about Jaws that is just so unassailable, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just a, just a couple of more things I want to mention. What you were saying about how that sort of tight conclusion, especially as things start escalating in urgency, uh, not only because the shark is closing in, but because the boat is sinking. And that is yeah. really impressive that the way they're able to just at a very quick glance communicate, this is exactly how screwed we are right in this moment the water yeah. level correlates to our screwedness and so yeah I think brody, really brody climbs up on that pole and he's jabbing at the shark with a stick it's, uh-huh. it's, it's crazy i love how at one point just pulls out a gun like as if yeah. that's gonna do anything yeah and take that sure, little revolver he does he does end up hitting the shark i like to think it would have it made no difference whatsoever but Probably it is there not. it shows the position that they're in that listen we have to do this. And something I really like about this movie is that we've got that first chunk of the movie in which it's sort of the debate of, do we close the beaches or not? In parentheses, yes, of course we effing do. But, you know, because the mayor, the, this person, this capitalist person who's just arbitrarily in charge and gets the final say on everything because he doesn't want to. That's pretty much all it is, because he doesn't want to close the beaches. That's all we need. That's all we need to hear. Mayor doesn't want to. That's it. Reminds me of a certain someone that is is running a certain uh, nation that we happen to live in today. So 
just yet another connection to the world we live in now. But what I love is that when they finally make the decision to close the beaches to hire Quint to go out onto the ocean and kill the shark, it takes like a day and or it's it's one day, right? I'm not remembering that. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's it's they go out and then there's the night like night falls and stuff. And then the next morning they kill the shark. So, yeah, it's a day. That's all it takes. And granted, Quint doesn't get back alive, but also it shows that that kind of determination to make everything okay, you know what I'm saying? To get rid of the bad thing, that can go a long way. And all you really need is the ability to do it. And they did it, dang it. And all they lost was a day worth of beach going, which is uh, really cool. And one last thing that I want to specifically mention is a moment that really stuck out to me this time in a way that it never has before. And that is Quint's final moments, because we hear we heard the story earlier, the USS Indianapolis, how the you know, their ship exploded. They were all in the water. They they had not even uh, reported in the mission that they were going on, which was to to deliver the uh, atomic bomb. And so they were stranded there for who knows how long. And the sharks were just picking them off one by one. And we hear just the vengeance in his heart. And it's a quick shot, but it's at the very end when the boat is being overturned and Quint slides into the shark's mouth. It is a phenomenal bit of acting by Robert Shaw, the way with just the facial expression, the frantic kicking of his legs, you see his entire character right there. Like, you know, everything that's going through his mind. It just, I don't know what it was about this moment specifically, why I'm focusing on it so much. It just really blew me away. That bit of acting right there. Has that moment ever stuck out to you? Oh yeah. I've, I remember after I started liking this movie when I was younger, I stopped watching it for a long time because Quint was my favorite. And I don't want mm. to see Quint get eaten in half. That yeah. is upsetting to me. And that scene is just, I don't know, that scene to me is, the because of the Indianapolis story, it feels like him and the shark are just connected in a way that obviously the shark is not actually after Quint because of who Quint is. He's just yeah. after this thing who has a knife who's trying to kill this who's trying to kill me. Yeah, and that's but that's it feels, the revenge stuff. Exactly. It feels like this is the sharks finally coming for Quint. Mm-hmm. Quint escaped the sharks back then, but they always catch up. And that, yeah. I don't know it, that's obviously not how it is, but that's how it feels. And that scene is powerful. Like the the blood spreading out of his mouth and watching the jaws clamp on his torso and he's uh, flailing the machete that is uh, that scene is insane we see this guy who for the entire movie has been this really like working class macho dude sort of in almost a what's what's in almost an over the top way at times yeah. and we see him staring death in the eyes those dead eyes like a doll's eyes and that's it like there's this weird poetry to it you know what i'm saying and i think what really puts a button on it is after hooper floats to the surface and says says to brody quint and brody laughs and says no and he's not laughing because he's happy that quint's dead all even though they didn't 
necessarily get along 100% of the time. I almost take it to mean he's laughing as if to sort of acknowledge like it was kind of meant to be, you know, in like this almost morbid way. It, it just kind of that's what was probably inevitably going to happen. You know what I'm saying? Full circle. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. So, so I want to mention real fast. So, so is there, we've talked about a lot of stuff. Of course, we didn't mention everything. We could go on for a very long time. Is there anything else about Jaws that you wanted to specifically bring up? Um, I think we covered it all. Like I, it's, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's, uh, it's Spielberg's first, one of his first, uh, movies ever. And it was, it, it set him on his, on the career that he had. And, yeah. you know, thank God. Uh, because he's brought us so many incredible movies mm. and uh, like i think this will always be remembered as his kind of number one you know yeah just generally just the general consensus this one has maintained and it will maintain forever if the events of this year are any indication um i want to address this real fast jaws had three sequels that are all bad to varying degrees but there oh, yeah. is this debate out there about th there's or not even a debate there's the common perception that jaws the revenge is worse than jaws 3 and anthony and i are here right now to say that that is absolutely not true jaws 3 is the worst jaws movie by far jaws 3d oh, oh my yes. god just it's it's <laughs> atrocious oh my goodness i can i i never I will never feel the need to watch any of those sequels again, unless it's for a podcast or something. I might do it. But even if that's the case, I legitimately might skip Jaws 3D. Like that is how pointless and empty that movie is. Jaws the Revenge, which I briefly mentioned a moment ago, is at least silly. It's bad. It's quite bad. Oh, it is. But, but at least it has Michael Caine. It's got Michael Caine hunting down a shark. And if that's not enough... To at least earn it, one star. <laughs> I think that's what I gave it on Letterboxd. I, I think, think so. Christopher Nolan should do a Jaws 5 with Michael Caine. <laughs> Jaws 5. <laughs> I'd you watch know what? that. I would see it. Yeah, I, I really would. Um, yeah. Yeah, so so yeah. And and Jaws 2, it's nah. It's, uh, it's got Roy Scheider. It's fun. It's, it's not good. It's, but it's watchable, yeah, but it barely. Just barely. It's got one of the funniest kills in movie history in it, though. Um, one of I'm the first gonna, ones, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to give it away. I know what you're talking about. It's really funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, uh, so, Anthony, what we do on Extra Milestone is we recommend similar movies to the ones we discuss. And I want to know right here at the end of our Jaws conversation, did you have a movie to sort of go along with Jaws in some way, whether it's literally, spiritually, in some weird tangential manner? What do you got? So I tried to find one that um, I'm pretty sure you haven't seen. Hmm. Um, Creature from the Black Lagoon, 1954. Yeah, I've missed that one. I've been meaning to get to it for so long. I've just never gotten to it. I, I thought long and hard about how to compare anything to Jaws. Mm -hmm. But Creature from the Black Lagoon is pretty close because it's a, a thing under the water that's going after pretty women on top of the water. And there's a boat with uh, kind of an ornery sea captain. And it's it's an adventure. It's meant to be a horror thriller. And it's it's I enjoy it a lot. It's 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 one of my favorite of the uh, I think it's one of the universal horror movies. I love it. 
Yeah, it's what it's in that uh, sort of vein that started with Dracula, Frankenstein, the Mummy, the Wolfman, that kind yeah. of thing. Um, even though it doesn't actually connect to any of them, like there's no crossover material, but it is it is often considered part of the same milieu. I'm I'm recalling in this moment actually, back on an early episode of Anyway, that's all I got. We were talking about the Oscars that year, early 2018. And uh, the Shape of Water one. I remember That's you right. bringing up the the comparison that Guillermo del Toro made with it. I do remember. Th- I, I do remember that conversation. How about yeah. that? Yeah. yeah. The yeah the creature from the Black Lagoon. It's a pretty iconic suit and mask, and it's mm-hmm. that. Similarly, they had a a lot of similar problems shooting this. You know, how do you get cameras underwater? How do you shoot underwater? The lighting, the you know, the sound, all that. It's it's filmmaking is crazy, isn't it? I love it. It really is, yeah. It's it's one I've been meaning to get to for a really long time. I know a lot about it. I've just never actually watched it. Maybe now is uh, as good a time as any. For my recommendation, usually I recommend a good movie. <laughs> but I'm, t- <laughs> I'm going to do something a little bit differently. So... It has been well documented, and I didn't I didn't mention this earlier for a reason. So Jaws, as I mentioned, was an enormous critical success to the point where it spawned almost an unbelievable number of knockoffs in the following decades. I found this huge list on IMDb that was as comprehensive as it gets of uh, Jaws knockoffs, and it was somewhere in the ballpark of 150. And a lot of them were directly in the wake of Jaws within 10 years of it coming out and still continues to this day with stuff like stuff like Sharknado could be considered a distant relative of the Jaws knockoff. But there's this entire cinematic just corner of Jaws knockoffs. And what I'm going to do is there's one I'm going to focus on, but I compiled a list of some of my favorites I actually haven't seen most of these, but I just want to read some of the funniest titles of Jaws knockoffs because it'll give you an idea of what this cinematic tradition was tapping into. We have Grizzly, (laughs) Mako, The Jaws of Death, Squirm, (laughs) Dogs, Eaten Alive, Claws, which is one of my favorite ones. I think I've heard of that one. Claws is about like a bear, so that sounds fun. Yeah, there's, yeah, I think I've heard of that one. There's tentacles, which I really, if if I had had more time, I would have spent like a day or two just watching a bunch of these. Alas, I did not. The White Buffalo. Oh, jeez. <laughs> day of the Animals, Empire of the Ants. Uh, let's see, Kingdom of the Spiders, The Pack, Night Creature, The Swarm, which is actually very famous. Piranha, which is very famous as well. Barracuda. Nightwing, Crocodile, Alligator, the list goes on. But perhaps one of the most notorious ones is a movie. And I I vaguely remember describing this to you at one point, but I, I'm curious if you'll remember. Is a movie called Orca. Have you heard of this, Anthony? I have heard of this, yes. Orca is one of the worst movies ever made. And that is what makes it great. It is a movie about Richard Harris hunting down a killer whale that is feeling vengeful for whatever reason. And it's like, it's it's as if Quint was the main character, except wasn't as ornery, I, I would say. Well, I mean, and his boat is called the Orca. It literally, yeah, and I, and I think that's a direct reference. Yeah. And, 
Except it's the the shark, or in this case, the whale, has much more of a mind of its own to almost a ridiculous degree. It is hilarious to watch because of just how poorly conceived it is. There are a ton of scenes I could describe. I'm just going to describe the first one. There's a dinghy out in the ocean. A shark comes up, starts attacking it, and then a killer whale rams the shark out of the ocean onto dry land and then the title comes up it is letting you know right off the bat this ain't no jaws this is orca by oh literally headbutting a shark out of the ocean which whales don't do and then there's oh, a really there's a scene later on involving a whale fetus that i will not describe but it is i the, the image is burned into my brain permanently and it's so bad, but it's so much fun to watch. So watch Jaws and then immediately watch Orca. See the see the comparison. It's really, really, really funny. Oh, I, I think I have to watch it now. Yeah, I highly recommend it. I highly do. Uh, just know know that you're in for something really stupid and ridiculous, and I think oh, you'll I'm have ready. a good time. Anthony, what do you say we move on to our B feature of the evening? Oh, if we must. So we talked about Jaws, which I think we both agree wholeheartedly is one of the greatest movies of all time. And I think we agree that The Empire Strikes Back is also one of the greatest movies of all time, is it not? Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe you've heard of it. It's a sequel to a movie called Star Wars. Luke Skywalker and Han Solo rescued the princess, destroyed the Death Star, but their story didn't end there. Creators of the biggest smash hit of all time bring you the next episode in the Star Wars saga, The Empire Strikes Back. The continuing story of our band of heroes, Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, Han Solo, C-3PO, R2-D2, and Chewbacca. And introducing Lando Calrissian. It's an epic of romance. Of heroes and villains. They cross trackless voids to unknown worlds. Odyssey against oppression. A big new sprawling space adventure in the Star Wars saga, The Empire Strikes Back. Coming to your galaxy next summer you know i've i've uh i've talked about star wars on a couple of podcasts in the past couple of years one of them was with you we actually reviewed all of the star wars movies back when solo a star wars movie came out a little over two years ago so i remember if i i 
can't recall off the top of my head if we sort of recounted these stories at the time, but let's just do the same thing we did for Jaws. Anthony, I know you're a big Star Wars fan. Where did that all start? What was the uh, the genesis of that? Uh, it's got to be birth, I think. Um, <laughs> what, what I remember, uh, I yeah. don't remember the first time I saw it. I don't remember the first time I saw any of them. Uh, I remember... Uh, Episode three is the first time I remember seeing something for seeing Star Wars for the first time because yeah. it came out in theaters when I was little. Mm-hmm. But I remember my uh, my mom described to, I think, a relative why me and my brother like Star Wars, because that's just all they would show us, because it's kind of perfect for kids. It's got action. It's not there's no gore. There's no swearing. There's no sex. It's yeah. it's it's a kid's movie. And it's it's fun and exciting and it's got cool music and it's got lightsabers and it's got Darth <laughs> Vader and yes. what's not to like. And then just as I grow up, I, I continue to watch them. And I don't think it was until um, maybe episode seven, The Force Awakens comes out that I really rewatched them and thought about them as cinema, as mm. film. And that that kind of changed my whole perspective of them. And it's it's I love Star Wars. Yeah, it's hard not to love. There's something really comforting. I, and we mentioned, I remember specifically mentioning this on the episode where we reviewed all the movies. There's Me something too. about the fact that it is Star Wars, that it is the thing it is, that it is this entity that has impacted the popular culture in such a huge way. Just going back to, to see them can in and of themselves be enough. I think I, I, I would say probably... Up until uh, uh, very recently, my least favorite of them was probably Attack of the Clones, which even that one I find to be somewhat watchable, if only for nostalgia. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm with you. I think we're, we're you're about a year older than me, but we're functionally like the same generation. So yeah. we definitely, uh, I think we connect to it in very similar ways, although I think your connection might be a little bit stronger than mine was i think just to go on a tangent about i also remember when revenge of the sith came out because it was it made me really angry that i couldn't go see it because it was (laughs) pg-13 and of course i was it was 2005 so i was six years old at the time oh my parents took me oh good for you and twice i i'm sure it was fantastic (laughs) at least twice and there's some really heavy stuff in revenge of the sith so i don't actually begrudge my parents whatsoever but i just remember that I just remember that so viscerally, just being so mad that I couldn't experience this thing. And so it was it, so that meant that the first Star Wars movie I saw in theaters was actually the Clone Wars animated movie, which is one of the worst of them all. Oh, it sure is. Yeah. And so that's it, it's weird to think how we first encounter these things in a theatrical setting. But that's a conversation for another time. So the, so when it comes to the Empire Strikes Back specifically, I was honestly, in in the months and weeks leading up to this, I was actually kind of debating whether or not to even discuss this. You know what I'm saying? Because it is such a popular movie, one uh, one of the most talked about of all time. It's often viewed as the best Star Wars movie. And I was just thinking, what can we really add to this? But then I realized, you know what, there's, there's, a lot here. There really is. It, it, I, I like what you mentioned earlier about how it's a kid's movie. I would just amend that slightly and say it's a kid's movie, but it knows that it is. And more, most importantly, it understands sort of how to tap into storytelling and tradition 
in a way that makes it really exciting, regardless of how old you are. I, I imagine that I'll still be watching this movie many, many years from now. And I think, and, and w- wouldn't you say that that's probably oh, likely to happen? <laughs> probably, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I ultimately decided, you know what, I'm going to talk about it and I'm going to have Anthony Battaglia on because, of course, uh, I, I know how big of a Star Wars fan you are. And there are a few things about this movie that really stood out to me this time. And I saw that you also rewatched this one as well, right? Yes, this is uh, actually the first movie I went to see um, back in theaters now that they're opening again. Oh, yeah. Th- this is the first one I saw. I'm like, well, no better way to get back into it than see it. Because it's also the first, it's the only of the original trilogy that I haven't seen in theaters. So now I've seen all the original oh, trilogy in theaters and it's it feels so good. Huh. That's nice. Yeah. I, I actually have not seen a single one in theaters. So I'll, I'll take glorious. Cross that off the old bucket list. Yeah. That's, I, I saw after we decided we were going to do this episode like a month or so ago, I saw theaters were opening up and they're showing the Empire Strikes Back. I'm like, oh, what are the odds? I, I bet Anthony will go to that. Oh, uh, I sure did. And lo and behold, he did. It is a yep. small world after all. Yeah. That sounds really great. It's, um, I'm surprised that you got a ticket, honestly, because I was looking on websites and I saw they were all sold out. Um, yeah, it had to be like first, a 9 p.m. showing. Yeah, we also we live in different areas, so we have different yeah. theaters. Um, I'm per- I just just to address it right off the bat, I'm still pretty hesitant to go back to theaters. So, um, but yeah, more more power to you, uh, whatever the case is. And yeah, so. I was watching it again, and there are a few things that really stood out to me this time. Um, the first one is the way, and this has been commented on by many before me, but it, it's sort of really solidified in my brain. The way that the Empire Strikes Back changed the idea of a sequel, specifically in its own franchise, but in a, in a lot of other franchises since. You'll notice in every Star Wars movie, which is almost all of them, that's been released since The Empire Strikes Back, not a lot of them have really tried to recapture what the original did, Episode Four. They've really sort of tried to recapture what Empire did in the sense of expanding the understanding of the universe, putting characters in situations that sort of test their limits a little bit, and unraveling the world before us showing us that there is more to this galaxy far far away than meets the eye i was thinking what is the star wars movie that has that is closest to maybe not recreating but at at least attempting to emulate the sort of you know adventure 1930s serial aesthetic of star wars episode four and it's probably solo a star wars story wouldn't you say yeah, I can see that. Um, I would also maybe guess uh, Rogue One, just because yeah, it's, it's I can see set that. set during the same time period as uh, Episode Four and Five ish. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I can de- like Solo has that kind of gallivanting uh, hero, swashbuckling. Yeah, I can see Rogue One. I think I I am a little hesitant on it because of the way that it actually does sort of hold its own place in the star wars universe at sort of a high like it with a lot of gravitas so that's that's something from that like sort of derived from empire but yeah it it is definitely um that sort of separate adventure kind of thing i i can definitely see the comparison and yeah just the way that this movie right off the bat we see in the opening crawl 
I love it's it seems so obvious now, but the idea that okay, we destroyed the empire's big weapon, they're really really mad at us and we have to hide on this secluded planet. And I like how with, from frame one of this movie, after the right after the opening crawl, we see them dispatching the probe droids. We see the Empire kind of has this in the bag through and through. Like there's never a moment when the rebellion really gains the upper hand. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And there's this. This has been replicated in various Star Wars movies since, most notably The Last Jedi, which sort of redoes the same basic structure of The Empire Strikes Back, albeit set. I, I forget what it is like. It's 30 something years in the future. Um, Something like but, that. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe 35. I forget the exact number. Someone will correct us in the comments. Um, but yeah, so we see not only has, is the universe still going strong, like there's more to it than just what we saw in episode four, but also the characters just feel different right off the bat. Don't they? Like every single time I've watched this, I've made note of that, how there's definitely been, some growth off screen here, you know, and maybe I, I like to think that's the direction, the writing that they chose uh, to really expand the Star Wars universe. Have, have have you ever noticed the way that they've sort of, they sort of feel a little different than they did? Yeah, I, I definitely think the, the addition of uh, Lawrence Kasdan to the writing team was mm-hmm. really, really effective in this movie. Like it's, it, it, it adds layers to a new hope in ways that are noticeable but not distracting like like you're right the characters princess leia is so different in this mm-hmm. movie than she is luke han everybody is so different yeah c3po is different it's it's <laughs> they they nobody is they're not just being carried over because they're the characters every character has a continued purpose and that's yeah. that's one of my favorite things about it. the character i notice more this viewing than any other was actually Chewbacca. And it was, this is the first time in as long as I can remember really where I've watched the empire strikes back just by itself. I didn't rewatch uh, episode four beforehand. And I don't, I have, I'm not exactly sure why, but for whatever reason that allowed me to see the way that this character has changed. I think we get a lot of really great Chewbacca moments in this movie that only last a few seconds. One of my favorites is when they're like trying to repair the Millennium Falcon at the rebel base. And he's just like flailing his arms around trying to just having no idea what to do. That's life right there. Like that, like Peter Mayhew is, is really bringing life to that. The other, another one also in that same sort of sequence is, Luke's not back. They're not sure what's going on, but they realize, listen, we got to shut the the doors to the bunker. And right as they close, just lets out this scream of, gosh, what I hope I'm, I'm in pain right now. I hope everything's okay. Like that's a really ironically humanizing moment of this Wookiee. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, Chewbacca's he's a real character. He's not just a sidekick. He's not just a pet. You know, he, he matters and he's relevant. It's great. Mm-hmm. He's probably got the most personality in this of uh, in Empire of any of the movies. I think. I think he's got some moments in Return of the Jedi, and uh, he's not really that big of a deal in the sequel trilogy. He's just sort of there. Yeah. Uh, and in New Hope, of course, he's just this sort of fun, furry sidekick creature. So, I just for it just goes to show how many times you can watch a movie and still things still occur yeah. to you. I'm curious. Did did you happen to have anything like that with this most recent viewing in the theater that uh that something occurred to you for the first time? Well, mostly just the scale of it. Hmm. 
seeing it on a big screen is different. And it's, I really hope this uh, virus doesn't destroy the theater industry because I don't want to lose what I, what I got here because it's so just the, because it obviously the action scenes are bigger and glorious and fun and, uh, Luke being awesome in the fighting the ATAT walkers. Yeah. It's all it's all glorious. But the smaller moments kind of shine through still in the big screen. Mm-hmm. And just for some reason, I just laughed so hard <laughs> when uh when Leia is insulting Han and he goes, Who's scruffy looking? <laughs> I I've I've heard the line, I know the line. Oh yeah. I'm, why did I laugh so hard this time? I don't know. But just for some reason, that interaction, I just almost fell out of my seat. I, I, the humor in this movie, it's a funny movie. It really Han, is. Yeah. Han Solo is a funny character. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's just really, it's, it's, there's so much character and personality in this movie. Yeah, I love the way that, actually, in sort of a weirdly, similar way maybe i'm just stretching a little bit but in a weirdly similar way to the second half of jaws where yeah they're on this vehicle let's just call it that's just breaking down and it's sort of a character of its own the millennium falcon in this movie is sort of like it should have been billed in the credits like that's how much (laughs) that's how much personality it has the way it's constantly breaking down they can't fix anything on it they keep trying you really it it really is is paying off that line of luke from episode four what a piece of junk and we exactly, finally get to see exactly. that in action this time as opposed to just you know oh, the hyperdrive's not working i'm gonna bang on the ceiling and that's gonna get it to work this we actually get a lot of character out of it and of course we now we know it's literally the spirit of a robot i don't care about that that's the millennium falcon um one one thing, actually, a couple things I noticed um, on uh, on Hoth when Luke gets taken into the Wampus Cave. I want to know if you've ever picked up on this. There's so so the Wampa sees Luke trying to escape. Luke gets a lightsaber, uses the Force, slices himself down. I still have no idea how he got frozen in the ceiling like that, but I've I've gone on about that before. And there's this weird moment where he's running out of the cave. You hear the lightsaber retracting sound, but it's still on. Have you ever noticed that? Yes, uh, I've picked up on a couple of those errors throughout the uh, the franchise. Yeah. In every single version, I was curious if this was a, just unique to the Blu-ray I had, but the, I was just jogging through my memory. I'm like, yeah, every single version I've seen, they've screwed that up. It's weird to think with all the special editions and remasterings that they would just remove that one sound effect or or make the lightsaber actually retract that's a tangent but it's just the, the, you know this the the devil is in the details as they say and then also yeah. on hoth something that really occurred to me a couple of things actually and this is cutting really deep but it's the empire strikes back so that's kind of what we have to do at this point is just really hone in on the details i was really impressed by the snow speeder effects the in a way that i wasn't before i don't know if this came across in the in the theater that you saw it in yeah definitely did it really occurred to me like, oh yeah, wow, this is like, it's it's the same basic technology as what they were doing with the X-Wings, like on the Death Star and the Trench Run and everything. But now we're dealing with like landscapes. And so I'm not sure exactly why, but just something about that really stuck out to me. It was like, yeah, they really put a lot of effects into it or uh, effort into it. Those effects still hold up. There's nothing about this movie that's dated, I don't think. And 
at least effects wise. And, uh, and yeah, it's just, a f- it's just a few things like that. Also, one funny little thing I noticed is the ATATs, the big walkers on Hoth. I was racking my brain. Are those the only vehicles in Star Wars that actually touch the ground? I was trying to think of others, and I can't think of one. They all, either they hover and maybe they have landing gear or something, or they're just hovering all the time. But this is one of the only ones that doesn't touch or that does touch the ground. We don't see wheels on Star Wars vehicles a lot, which means that the line that Leia has where she's like, what do you want me to do? Get out and push? That actually doesn't mean anything <laughs> in Star Wars. The, that the was only, funny to The me. only other things that I can think of that touch the... So, like, there's the AT-ST walkers uh, oh, from yeah, episode right. six. But then in Clone Wars, some of the, the, the Jordicas and the the bigger, the, the big walker spider things, those, those, those oh, touch yeah, the ground. Right. And there's also yeah. some stuff, like, at that final assault where there, there's one that has wheels. I forget what it's called. But it's it's got two giant like tank tracks or something. But I, huh. other than in the original trilogy, yeah, it's weird. Like it is kind of weird to see like oh they have the Death Star and now giant giant walking things on four <laughs> legs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, I I feel like a moron right now. I didn't even think about the prequel trilogy. Yeah, I was mostly just thinking about the uh, original trilogy. I was like, wow, this is the only like land vehicle. So weird detail, but I'm glad that we I'm glad that we talked it out. And, Me too, yeah. Yeah, so let, let's just, um, obviously, others have talked about it a lot before, so we won't go on terribly long about it. But I do want to get into a little bit of detail about the characters themselves. I There's another moment that sort of, that I sort of took notice of this time around is after the assault on the rebel base at Hoth, they're flying away and they're like, all right, we're going to go to the rendezvous point. And Luke's like, yeah. The rendezvous point. That's what I'm going to do. And we see this. It's just this early hint of Luke's irresponsibility. His The way that he's sort of uh, rashly making decisions in sort of his own interest, or at least what he thinks is the best interest. And yeah, we see that's what takes him to Dagobah. And it it is at this point that I have to acknowledge one thing. So I don't know if you've ever seen it, Anthony, but there's a video on YouTube uh, by a, by a channel that does this thing called bad lip reading. Have you ever heard? Oh, of I've it? seen it. I've yeah. seen what you're talking about. I cannot ever watch the Dagobah scenes ever again because back last uh, winter when Star Wars: The Rise of Skywalker came out, the theater I worked at they would play that clip in the opening pre-show every single time. And of course, it was really busy. It was the holiday seasons. We all had a lot of hours, so everyone working there heard that song. 40,000 times to the point where I'm watching these scenes. I cannot even pay attention to the dialogue because I'm remembering, uh, and this is the part where Yoda says, penny for your thoughts. <laughs> yeah. my, um, my favorite part of that is like uh, Luke's whining goes, and, and I hate Brenda. And then he hits his head on the ceiling. Yeah, that's a, that's I a, hate funny, Brenda that's a funny video. And a bad guy hit me in the shin and I peed all over my pants. <laughs> yeah, that is a funny scene. Nothing a little music can't fix. Yeah, it is this thread that connects anyone who worked at an album draft house at the time. And so I just I I feel the need to acknowledge that that yeah, this scene is forever changed in my eyes. Um but yeah, there there's a there's this thing I've always 
sort of noticed about the Empire Strikes Back that really, uh, this is another thing that really sort of solidified for me this time around as I was sort of trying to think a little bit harder about it. We've seen throughout all of Star Wars history from the very beginning, from episode four, we have the good guys and the bad guys, obviously. Initially, it was the Rebellion and the Empire. Uh, then it's like in the prequels, it's the Republic and the Separatists. And then we go to the Resistance of the First Order, whatever it is. We've seen throughout all of Star Wars history, they're in, in, in addition to just sort of their end goal, there's one thing that very specifically separates the good from the bad. And that is the bad guys don't really how should i say this they don't really care for their own and what i mean by what I, what i mean by that is that we see luke training on dagobah and we he gets this vision that oh no my friends are in trouble even though yoda and obi-wan the ghost of obi-wan profusely insist on no luke this is not a great idea you've got to stay here you're not ready and you're going to lose, which of course does happen. But it's that insistence on doing literally everything you can about not letting a single life go to waste. The Empire, the villains, just in general, on the other hand, throughout this entire movie, Darth Vader is killing his own men. And we see that in every single iteration of star wars i think this it, it made me think of general grievous in the clone wars animated series not the one from uh 2003 but the one that went on for like seven seasons general grievous just murders battle droids left and right and so it's this really sort of not even subtle but just kind of understated way of establishing yeah this is really kind of what it's all about is the difference between good and evil is recognizing the value that life has as opposed to pursuing your goal at any cost. And I'm not exactly sure why, but something about watching the way that Darth Vader sort of viciously goes after his goal in this movie to find Luke and to turn him to seduce him even over to the dark side. I really got that divide in a way I never have before. And of course they're using familiar iconography, the, Empire in the original trilogy is very clearly like Nazis, you know, as opposed to the uh, the allies that are the rebellion. I'm not I, I, I couldn't say why, but something about watching it this time, I've really picked up on that. And I'm sure that you have as well, Anthony. Yeah, it's it's pretty night and day between the good guys and the, the light side, the dark side, mm-hmm. uh, the way Darth Vader is just willing, you know, hey. Captain Nita, you messed up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill you now. Yeah, you've been promoted, other guy. Congratulations, <laughs> Admiral. Yeah, one of my favorite scenes that I don't know if it's meant to be funny or not. I would be surprised if it wasn't. It's when they're going through the asteroid field chasing after the Millennium Falcon. There's a shot where there's a star destroyer, one of the small ones. And a meteor just crashes into the bridge and blows up the whole ship. And then a, a guy in a hologram just fades away. And it's like, well, that's the end of that guy. And that's it. That moment has always really been weird to me. The way that this guy just sort of dies and no one really, this entire ship just perishes immediately before their very eyes. And they're like, nope, got to keep going. And so 
there's a lot of moments like that where just the the way that the dark side just sort of disregards the, the light side, yes, but also other members of the dark side. This is something that would be addressed later in Revenge of the Sith, the legend of Darth Plagueis the Wise, how, yeah, the Sith is just a long history of apprentices killing their masters. You know what I'm saying? And so to see it all just kind of laid out right here, of course, it was in uh, New Hope. We saw that guy whose lack of faith Darth Vader found disturbing. Um, but to see it here in a way more dramatic fashion, Darth Vader he does it a couple really, times. He really does. Yeah. And, and can do it through um, like the video screen as it yeah. turns out. And yeah, Darth Vader is really mysterious in this movie in in the pursuit of this goal that of course, at the time, if you're watching it, you have no idea why, like what is, what is so different about Luke besides that he's, you know, a Jedi in training. And there's just this dramatic flair to Darth Vader that I think is really is really entertaining and makes uh, is part of what makes him such an iconic villain. The way he has like this big clamshell like man cave or whatever, like the Darth Vader cave with the helmet and everything. And we later find out that he has a fortress in a volcano. Darth Vader has some really dramatic stuff, has a cape for no reason. The list goes on. Yeah, I'm, I love Darth Vader. He's one of my favorite just movie characters of all time. Mm-hmm. And he like he was cool in episode four, but in five Empire, he is off the wall like he the the level he just becomes like, I don't know how to describe the difference between him here and in episode four. Like mm-hmm. he's 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 charismatic and he's suave and the way he talks to Boba Fett. And the way he makes deals about like, oh, don't you worry. He'll be fine. He'll be good for uh, Jabba. Don't, don't chill out, Boba. Yeah. And then just the, the way he talks to Luke in their confrontation, it's, it's, it's such a different way. And a, a James Earl Jones gets to shine through in this one. And right. John Williams added another John Williams uh, score in this movie. Yeah, that's uh, true. He, the, he added the, uh, the Imperial March. That, wa- that wasn't in episode four. That was in yeah. this one. He adds a and, bunch of tracks, actually. There's a lot yeah. of, like, the Bespin uh, sound effect as they're sort of escaping and the when they're sort of, like, being pursued by the TIE fighters through the asteroid field. That's all new tracks, and it's instantly recognizable, and it's weird to think that they were invented for this movie. And, of course, the same yeah. is true for Jedi. Yeah, John Williams is insane. And then he did it again in episode one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. And I think I think the sequel trilogy had a little less memorable music, but, you know, that's just... Yeah, um, yeah, I can but, see like, this movie is everything about it just ups up the ante from episode four in the best possible way. Everything. And it's, it's so, it's so crazy. Yeah. It's, I, I really, really like it. I think there's, there's a reason why it's considered uh, the ultimate star Wars movie by pretty much everyone is because it is, it's got, it's got literally everything, you know, there's nothing in almost any other movie really with few exceptions in any other star Wars movie, I should say that isn't at least kind of in the empire strikes back. Like they really, really kind of nailed it the second time out. And, um, personally, it's actually my second favorite. Um, I, uh, I, I prefer 
The Last Jedi a little bit. I think they're equally good, but I consider that a little bit of favorite. For the half of you that are still, that have turned this off, including Anthony, <laughs> um, <laughs> I get it. It's different kind of movie, but I just want to make sure that I address that. Um, well, I mean, this this is also my second favorite. It's, it's definitely the best, in my opinion, mm-hmm. um, Star Wars movie, but my favorite will, I think, will always be uh, A New Hope, it's originally just called Star Wars, like, yep. where they didn't know exactly what they were doing, they were winging it, George Lucas just had some wild, crazy idea that you just had to figure out how to do, and then you go from that to this is, the there's such a clear step up. It's- mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, really great. I have... Every flaw I have is nothing more than a nitpick. There are a few scenes in sort of a subplot, like in the middle of the movie with uh, Han and Leia and Chewie and C-3PO on the Falcon. It's not that they're bad. It's just I find that they fade out of my memory in between viewings. Like I just sort of, I'm like, as I watch it, I enjoy it, but I just don't think about it as much. Not even a complaint, just sort of a thing like, okay, this isn't as iconic and awesome as everything else in this movie. And how have we not mentioned Yoda yet? You know, it's... Oh um, my God, you're right. We got to talk about Yoda. We got to talk about Yoda. Well, we briefly mentioned it with the seagulls. With the seagull song, yeah. Um, Yeah. And you know what? This actually ties into my recommendation, which I'm just going to give right now. And Anthony, I'm anticipating a guffaw from you because this is going to be just the most Sam TM recommendation ever. But I'm ready. It is Akira Kurosawa's Dersu Uzala. I knew you were going to say Akira Kurosawa. (laughs) I knew it. I knew it. We we both got to bring up our uh, our favorite director in this movie. Yeah, that's true. That's Um, true. Darcy Uzal, if you do not know, is a movie directed by Akira Kurosawa, one of the greatest filmmakers ever, ever, ever to live. The greatest, I say. Made in 1975 after kind of a rough patch in his career. And it is about a Russian... Uh, oh, gosh. I forget the exact uh, word for it. I think it may be like cartographer or something along those lines that has been sent out into the woods of this nation in the early 20th century in like 1907 or something like that to sort of chart the land, make maps and stuff and figure out what's like the, you know, the, the ecosystem and everything and comes across this wanderer in the woods named Dursu Uzala, who is the direct inspiration for the character of Yoda. He is a short kind of funny looking, kind of funny talking guy who just lives in the woods lives off the land has a lot of strangely philosophical things to say but also behaves very eccentrically and teaches the character that comes across him a new way to look at the world and indeed changes his life for the better it's a really beautiful movie both uh visually and also spiritually i only just saw it recently because i've been listening to this podcast called star wars episode zero which is a show where they sort of go back in time and look at all of the movies that influenced Star Wars. And this is one of the very first ones they did because, and you watch this movie, you see Yoda immediately, like having having seen uh, The Empire Strikes Back and every other Yoda appearance so many times, you really can see how the character was directly adapted from this. So as far as I know, it's only available on the Criterion channel. There's yet to be a, a sufficient... 
uh, restoration. But if you have it, by all means, check it out. It's well worth it. And I think it's really, really great. And I think you can really learn something about the origin of this iconic character that is Yoda. Anthony, did you have a recommendation to go along with Empire? Uh, yeah. Uh, so I couldn't think of anything terrible to this at all. Um, so what I did, I thought back to what I said earlier about um, how it just upped the ante of a sequel in every way possible. Hmm. So in no way does this movie go <laughs> along with like, you're not going to see, oh yeah, I can see the connection. It's, uh, it's Robert Rodriguez's Desperado, huh? which is a sequel to his first movie, El Mariachi, which was famously made for like 7,000 bucks. He did it all himself, got him famous became uh he became known and he got into all the festivals like can and stuff and then when he became successful in that way the studios gave him money to make more and huh. he made desperado which is antonio banderas selma hayek danny trejo uh action movie very violent uh tarantino-esque tarantino is actually in the movie oh. um he, he has a little cameo because him and robert rodriguez are buddies Nice. And this this movie is so good. It's it's it takes El Mariachi, just just kind of this campy, very obviously cheap action movie that like has Robert Rodriguez's cousin playing roles and stuff, and it takes it into a high caliber thriller with emotion and weight and effects huh. and. It's it's very violent, very fun, action packed. I it's one of my favorite movies ever, uh, and it's one of the best sequels I think that is ever sequeled. I love it so much. <laughs> nice. You, you know what? I'm I'm just gonna come right out and say it. Uh, Robert Rodriguez is actually a rather huge blind spot in my cinematic knowledge. So um, I actually have not seen Desperado, but I'm very curious to see it now. Especially, I had no idea it was a sequel. I thought it was just its own thing. So. That's fascinating. Um, yeah, it's it's part two of it's. Uh, I forget what he calls it. I think he just calls it the El Mariachi trilogy. Hmm. Part three has uh, Johnny Depp, and it's called Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Yeah, and it's not quite as good, but it's pretty good. Okay. And uh, yeah, Robert Rodriguez is great. And uh, you know, I'll say the same to you. Kurosawa is a blind spot in my in my uh, repertoire. So I need to. I I really I've only seen. I think uh, no. I don't think I've seen any of his movies, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. So I'm oh, definitely wow. going to get into those more. Yeah. Well, you know what? Listen, we all have them. It's no one can see everything. It's literally impossible. So yeah. we all have our blind spots. It's all about uh, knowing where to fill those in. So I think we both uh, can learn a lot from each other. Anthony, I, I know I sort of uh, jumped to the recommendations a little bit, but did you have, I, I know you sort of summed it up a little bit there, but did you have sort of a final word? on the empire strikes back that you wanted to give like we didn't mention the ending if you wanted to mention that quickly what do you got yeah um when i think back to this movie and what i think it's special i always think of the dagobah scene with yoda how he says uh when he pulls the the x-wing out of the out of the swamp and luke says i don't believe it and yoda says that's why you fail i think the training sequence is so beautifully done and yoda is such like, yeah, he's wacky and silly, but he's such a real character and he's he 
it's it's really interesting how they how you can take him seriously when he's literally a puppet. A muppet. And then yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just Frank Oz with his hand up a muppet. It's, it's uh-huh. great. And the other thing I'll say is the ending. Darth Vader and Luke's lightsaber battle is my favorite lightsaber yep. battle. Yep. I love it. It's what it's always striking to me how beautiful it is. The lighting of the the blue around them and then the orange kind of like tiles shining up like it's intense and it's much more fast paced than the obi-wan darth vader fight <laughs> yeah that one's yeah. always funny to me <laughs> just... it's uh, um, yeah i agree it's 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 kind of jarring the difference and then you watch something like duel of the fates with darth maul and it's like wow yeah technology is crazy but like that that fight scene is just i i don't know why but i love it i think darth vader shines and he's menacing and he's scary and you're scared for luke even though you know luke's the good guy and he he's not gonna die here but darth vader is so overpowering and i what i want to know i want to know what you think of the uh the twist the the big twist the i am your father twist what because i for i don't even remember what my what my thinking was when i first saw that so what what were what did you think of that I actually don't remember either. It was just that thing where I saw it at, su- at such a young age that I wasn't paying attention to the plot in such a way that that would really have the intended effect. And so I'd actually be very curious if there are any listeners out there who were uh, who saw this in the theater when it first came out. Uh, I I would I'd be dying to know what was that like because I've heard yeah. stories but I would I would love to hear another firsthand account of yeah like because that's kind of been a trope lately like the the secretly the villain and the good guy are related somehow like most mm-hmm. recent most recently I can think of the last Pirates of the Caribbean movie where oh it's his daughter and I'm like oh jeez <laughs> that is ridiculous but like I want like was this the first one to really take it to that level. What what was the reaction? Were people genuinely shocked? I, I'm so curious about that. Yeah, I'm trying to think of another movie that came before it where it had had that kind of twist. Nothing's coming to mind. I'm sure it, there was precedent, but this one is really the one that has lingered to this day. And Jaws was Quint's father. Jaws was the the shark father. Of this man. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna echo everything uh, that you said about that lightsaber fight especially in contrast i was thinking about that what are the best lightsaber fights and i think it's duel of the fates it's anakin versus obi-wan at the end oh, of yeah. revenge of the sith oh yeah it's this one which is number one um i'm a fan uh of the uh ray and kylo ren versus all the guards after killing Supreme that was a good one i really like that one and it's not much of a fight so i don't know if it qualifies but i am a huge fan of luke versus kylo ren i just think it's a beautiful ending um i know you i know you have your problems oh i hate so. that ending but i won't i won't go there yet um <laughs> we've yeah. talked about it before yeah yeah uh yeah uh, it's it's crazy the the way these fights progress throughout all the movies it's mm-hmm. beautiful and the, it's so it's crazy how they do it yeah, I think the close sixth place is um, the uh, Luke versus Darth Vader in Return of the Jedi. That's a great one. Uh, yeah, that's, that is especially that. in contrast with this one where Luke is so overpowered and now it's kind of the other way around. So, yeah, C- come back in three years. We could talk about uh, Return of the Jedi for the 40th anniversary. Oh, I will. I know exactly. I'll be there. On. Actually, probably in two years because uh, uh, New Hope. We'll see how that goes. Um and yeah, we've we've gone on and on. Just last thing I'll say is, 
again, just the ending of this movie, the way that the Empire strikes back and wins. I just love it so much. The way that it's not this huge tragedy, the way it's like, it just understands like, yep, we lost this. There's more to this than we thought. The war is only just beginning. And I just love that final shot looking out at the stars. It's really, really great. Um, And I'm a huge fan. Yeah, the last moments are really special. And Lando, we haven't even mentioned Lando. Lando, oh, yeah. he's so back much. in the Falcon and he's with Chewie. And they're like, we're going we're gonna to go get Han. And it's, yeah, yeah that, that is a, it's a beautiful ending. It's really great. We could go on and on and on about this. Oh, movie. yeah. <laughs> uh, and this is, a, and it's not even the first time we've talked about it. So that's just goes to show how much there is to explore in a galaxy far, far away. And with that, Anthony, I think that's our show. Thank you so much for joining me on The Extra Milestone. I had a really good time. Oh, I did too. Uh, I had a lot of fun. It was my pleasure. I'd love to to have you back sometime. You know what? What about... Maybe uh, maybe a little, uh, anyway, that's all I got. Reunion is in order somewhere down the line. I think we might just have to do that. That could be a lot of fun. Yeah. So, so uh, k- keep your eyes and ears peeled for that, listeners, because that is just on the horizon. And with that, I believe that, to quote our old podcast, is all we got. <laughs> Beautiful. I almost forgot. Anthony. Uh, where can the good people find you online if they want to know what what you're up to in the movie world? Well, I mean, I, I'm not very uh, prominent on social media. I don't have like Instagram or anything, but uh, I love movies. So go to my letterbox. Uh, just search. It's Anthony Battaglia. My uh, picture is just of Darth Vader, uh, <laughs> unironically. Yep. And uh, yeah, I, I review movies there. I enjoy reading comments and i make lists and i love it i do, i really really love movies yes i can tell as a matter of fact and uh <laughs> i'm also on letterbox that is of course in the show notes as always i'm also on twitter at nolan sam trying and failing to grow my presence on there but it's fun nonetheless uh that's where i am and i think with that we're gonna sign off from uh, the, the Wampa's Cave, which is not as chilly as it looks. I'm Sam. Oh, I'll, I'll do one from Jaws. From the Orca, I'm Anthony. <laughs> and we'll see you on the next Extra Milestone.